Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. I'm struggling at the minute because a conversation with Rob Flynn is a conversation that doesn't require an introduction. But I'll have a go, fuck it. Machine's relationship with Roadrunner Records stretches all the way back to the early 90s, a really interesting time of the label's history when it's like moving away from thrash and death and moving into more diverse territories. And Machine Head kind of fit the bill for that rescoping and realignment of priorities. So I was really keen to understand Rob's perspective on the label, what with being on the other side of the desk in that relationship. Uh, he gave me a lot of unique insights and a lot of things I need to think about when it comes to researching this whole project as a whole and, and understanding Roadrunner as an entity. I've tried to tidy up the audio a little bit because I'm a little bit echoey. Uh, and there's a bit where I call Machine Head an LA band. That's on me because I thought Auckland to LA was like Hillsborough to fucking Sheffield. But you know, I don't care. Don't at me. So let's jump into it. One, two, fuck shit up. Thank you very much for uh, taking taking the time because it's 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 a weird thing to ask uh, when it's like, do you want to talk about your ex employer? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Do you want to talk about your ex boss? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but we'll, we'll we should open up with like the general housekeeping and and recent events um, because I want to congratulate on, on becoming the Firestorm because I've, I've enjoyed uh, the single as a whole. But becoming the Firestorm for me, it just like had like it had a European sensibility to it, which I really enjoyed. Okay, cool. No, thank you, man. I'm I glad you enjoyed it. it. I think it was just like the way the wrists were constructed kind of made me feel a bit children of burdeny. And a feel there was a little black metal feeling there, like a toe was sort of sat in that world. And then it sort of transitions like into the chorus with the it felt like mid-2000s metal core, which is where my ass is planted a lot of the time. So what's happening in Machine Head World then? Is it just kind of like teasing up into the new album in that sense? Um, Right now the plan is to... So those three songs, along with My Hands Are Empty, are mm-hmm. going to end up on the next Machine Head record. And for me, uh, especially with just the pandemic and the way you know everything is right now and not being able to tour and you know i mean some tours are coming back but it's uh it's all been a bit crazy and i've just been like i just want to put music out like i don't want to wait for a record like i don't, I just want to get music out you know a lot of times when you write a record you, you know those songs are two years old by the time you put them out sometimes yeah, yeah. and so I, th- I think especially with the new tools with the ability to just release stuff digital only and you know people are kind of all over there anyway mm-hmm. that uh that that's that that's the future man and i i also know that vinyl production is fucking insane right now and it's like a seven to eight month lead time so even if i turned in a record today let's say today's july july 6th like that record probably isn't the vinyl's not going to be ready until february 6th Mm. which is a fucking long time man and so i'm like I get it. Like we're in a pandemic. Shit's crazy. Like just whatever. And so adapt and do something different. You know, like you can still get music out of the fans. You know, yeah, I like yeah. it because, you know, I finished a song, you know, I finished arrows a month ago, <laughs> two months ago. And, and and here it is. It's, it's out. People are enjoying it. People are loving it and feeling it. And to me, that's like what it's all about. You know, this is about feeding the diehard, feeding the head cases and, and just keeping it moving from there. It's also about it's also innovating. About innovating. In times of strife. Yeah. 
I love it. I mean, I, I'm all Spotify or Apple Music anyway. So like, you know, I don't, you know, I know people always get mad at me when I say this too. And I'm like, I don't know why you're getting mad at me. Like, I don't buy CDs. Like, I don't buy vinyl. I'm half my life is on the fucking road. Like, I'm not going to carry a record player and fucking vinyl with me. You know, I was that dude who had that giant CD wallet that was just covered in beer and vodka and Coca-Cola. And it was just such a mess. And like, fuck, I love everything being on my phone. I love being able to just open up Spotify or Apple Music and I've got the the history of recorded music at my fingertips and it's amazing yeah i mean how the world's going to move on because i mean the, the digital revolution and, and how the spotify thing has kind of affected the, the album cycle and how it's it, it's affected the consumer's relationship and expectations it's now come to a head where everyone's innovated so much in the past like 18 months it's like other seeds are planting to help that move on a bit so I'm quite excited by that. Yeah. And where it'll go, who knows? But it's it's good to see people embracing it and just going, we can we can we can increase the metabolic rate at which bands can operate. Like Weezer, full album cycle every year to 18 months. That's yeah. not negligible. That's quite important to how we perceive what bands should be doing. Yeah. So it's it's right. good to see that it's it's taking different forms. And, and the record, there will be, you know, for all the people that do want physical, there will be ultimately probably at the beginning of next year or the middle of next year, there will be an album. You know, it'll be yeah, a full yeah. CD. Digi I'm not going to do a CD. I'm actually just going to do a Digipack, you know, an eco-friendly, very little plastic Digipack. Um, it won't have any bonus stuff, but it'll just be like the full kind of glorious awesomeness yeah, of a Digipack. Yeah. We'll have the full vinyl. You know, we've been doing these pretty, pretty elaborate vinyl releases that people are really stoked on you know like really really detailed you know like the, we did the blackening one it had you know platinum gold you know platinum leaf on it and just mm. you know really really premium stuff and that's what i want to do like if we're going to do if we're going to do physical it, to me it needs to be special it needs to be different you know it needs to be something that you know, I, I don't want to, do, I don't want to ever put out just a regular jewel box CD again, yeah, you know, yeah. like I want it to be something that is a piece of art, you know, like I'm a total fucking iPhone nerd. Like I'm such an iPhone nerd that I've kept every iPhone box <laughs> that I have. <laughs> and there's a reason for it because to me, those little iPhone boxes, they're such a, they're, they're a little work of art unto themselves. And you know, they, the suction, when you pull it up, just you know it just opens up it's just perfectly little you know all those little details i love and that's that's what i want to sell that's what i want to put out into the world and if people want to buy that physical stuff then that's what it's going to be that's a perfect segue into the roadrunner stuff because this entire thing is about you're, you're saying about the iphone boxes that's a deliberate thing that's a deliberate feeling that a company is trying to impart to a consumer to establish a relationship and a bit of rapport and I, the whole premise of this Roadrunner thing is what they did was not a fucking accident. And their relationship with the consumer in metal and what they did to metal was not an accident. It's all your fault, it turns out. Turns out. Um, so what happened was, I wanted to do this for a while. Similar to, you know, you're not a patient person, you want to put music out there. I've wanted to do like a history of Roadrunner Records for quite a few years, like um, either in a book form or something like that. And I've done like little bits and shitty things here and there. And I started writing it and things like that. And in the research, I keep seeing this dude coming up called Monty Connor. And I'm like, the 
something there's somewhere in the, the the infrastructure which this guy is aligned to this is just like a, me a consumer not knowing jack shit about the industry just seeing this name come up and then i pop on youtube one day and see that you've done an interview with him for no fucking regrets and that's like for anyone who doesn't know anything about roadrunner that's like the perfect starting point perfect because he was like the beating heart of it from an A&R perspective for 25 fucking years. But then I jumped onto your stream, one of your first Twitch streams. And I think you might have just said, how are you all doing or something? I was like, I just saw that video with Monty Connor. I thought it was very good. And I'm doing a thing about Roadrunner. And you were like, cool, man. But then a little message pops up into my inbox. And it's Michelle Kerr, who says, I wouldn't mind seeing that when you finish with it. Um, and I was like, oh, shit, oh, okay. wow. it's got to be good now. Mm-hmm. Fuck. <laughs> and so that started this domino effect. I'm now like, wow, like that's crazy. 80 something hours. So my like podcast the- over to my Twitch to Michelle Kerr reaching out to you to, to here we are. To the yeah. fear setting in. <laughs> I have to deliver it now. No, yeah. But you're just doing a podcast, right? Or are you doing like a documentary or? Correct. So okay, it started out as a, um, as a zero. So what, is, so what is this? What are we, what is this that we're doing? This is, is like this a, for a podcast. A, yes. This is like a, this is a, a research vehicle dressed as a podcast. Okay. Gotcha. I've, so I've, I've prepared some questions, but knowing that there's too much to go through, um, we should just bro down and just talk about Roadrunner. Um, cool. Yeah. I mean, I saw your, you sent me the kind of the, the talking points or whatever. Yeah, I'm cool to whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. So I think, <laughs> I try and I try and kick this off before Machine Head because with, with violence, you guys were assigned to mechanic, and there was one person there who's kind of the unsung hero of the Roadrunner story, and that's Holly Lane because she opened the U.S. office. She was the one there who like was there getting the printers in and getting the computers in, uh, and then she moved on to form Mechanic with Steve Sinclair. So I just want to know if you have any she, memories. She of- opened the Roadrunner office in New York and then left Roadrunner for Mechanic. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. But yeah, she recruited Monty and then like 10 days later left. Oh, crazy. Yeah. I don't say that would have, you know, at that point I didn't really have a whole lot of contact. I know Steve Sinclair at mechanics was who I would, you know, I had talked to a handful of times. I do recall Holly lane and I remember the name and I'm sure I talked to her, but it's, I was 20 years old and drunk and on a lot of methamphetamines and it's just a blur. <laughs> I don't know. Sure. Sure. But I have, I do remember the name and I remember I'm, I'm certain I talked with her. I just, I wasn't really the main guy in violence, you know? So like mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been dealing with the record company for most things. Sure. Sure. It makes sense. It makes sense. So I read somewhere that machine itself was formed October 12th, 1991. Is that, does that name ring a bell? Yes, we're, uh, we're coming up on our 30th anniversary here. Anything planned? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's the day we, you know, we just we just celebrated the Burn My Eyes 25th anniversary and did like a bunch of touring behind it. So, you know, I, I can't really, uh, you know, it's the day we started with, you know, we only, we didn't even have any song. I mean, I had three songs. <laughs> so yeah. like, I could play those three songs, you know. <laughs> maybe play some of the demos or something i don't know but like you know just we're gonna celebrate it in some way you know like it's a pretty big it's a pretty big deal you know it is a a birthday even if there's nothing like there's nothing physical or tangible to to put to it it still is a birthday i guess 
Yeah. Yeah. It is an and, and it's, for me, me more than maybe the band, it's a, it's a special day because it was, you know, it was at, I'm at a, I'm at a Metallica Soundgarden, faith no more. I think body counts opening. Uh, it's a day on the green, which is a big festival. It was a f- back when festivals only had four bands. <laughs> so it was a four band festival at the Oakland Coliseum. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'd been in violence for, uh, I think four years at that point. And, uh, and things were starting to change, you know, like the thrash scene was really starting to die. And, and, you know, we, we went from playing you know, tons of, we were killing it in the Bay area for, good couple of years there to just kind of things were things were fizzling fizzling out you know i was feeling i was 24 at the time and i was just like i'm old like it's I'm, it's over like <laughs> it's like my life is like i'm gonna have to get a real job I, you know like i just felt so old compared to everything else in the scene and uh but i still had new music that i wanted to play and yeah. i had new music that i had things i wanted to say i had I had always sang, you know, but I just, at the time prior to that, just didn't have the confidence to sing. Mm. And, you know, in violence, I was the new guy in violence for, for the whole time. You know, I joined right before, about a year before Eternal Nightmare came out and I was the bottom of the totem pole. Yeah. I managed to claw my way above Dean Dell, who was the bass player. And, uh, you know, at, at, at some point I was just like, I, I just need to do my own thing, man. Like I just, I, I got ideas. I, I think I know better than these guys. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I wanted to call the shots, you know, I couldn't call the shots, you know, that it was Phil Perry and Sean, they called the shots in violence. And that was, mm-hmm. that was it. And, uh, and that's fine. You know, that's just, the, that was just the way things were established, but I wanted to be the one who called the shots. I wanted the buck to stop with me. I, wanted to rise or fall by my own blood, sweat and tears. You know, yeah, I wanted yeah. to carve my own path and forge my own destiny. And, 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 and if it failed, it was on me. And if it succeeded, it was on me. Yeah. And yeah. so I, uh, I was watching Metallica play black album stuff. And I, you know, this was a band that I had seen Metallica opening for Raven to 200 people at the Keystone Berkeley, <laughs> you know, like not even five or six years before this. So like, it was just like, Oh my God, like never in a million years could I have imagined that this type of super heavy music that was very underground and not even on the radio in the Bay area where the band was from mm-hmm. wouldn't refuse to play them. You know, like it was just, it was incredible to see. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to start a band called Machine Head and I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And that was the moment that I just, you know, changed. I was still, I was a side project originally. I stayed in violence for another four months and then I quit. And then, and then that's all I've done since. Just you, put all my you, energy into that. You've touched on something interesting though, Rob. So you said like thrash was dying. How could you tell that at the time? Because when we speak about Roadrunner and like the infrastructure, which it builds around itself, it, it it has to know when things are in vogue or not. So I'm wondering from your perspective, how are you aware that something's fizzling out? Is it just the frequency of the gigs? Is it there's less tangible revenue? I mean, not, no, it's never about like money. Like I'm, you know, I'm just looking at, I'm just going to shows, you know what I mean? And I'm just catching the vibe of stuff. And, and, uh, 
you know, that, that's that early scene, you know, like I talk, like I talk about seeing Metallica opening for Raven to 200 people in Berkeley, mm-hmm. you know, like that was first time I ever saw them. Exodus opened. It was fucking life changing experience. It was, it was, you always hear the old cats talk about seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. That was my Beatles, Ed Sullivan moment right there mm-hmm. at, the, at the Keystone. And, uh, I mean, that was the moment I was like, okay, I'm going to start a band. You know, I was with my friend, Jim. I was like, we're going to start a band. We're going to play faster than everybody and heavier than everybody. And, you know, we're going to get into the clubs and, and we did. And, uh, eventually. And so it, it went through this incredible rise for a while, yeah. you know, and then, and then early grunge stuff started coming along, like early sound garden, early stuff like that. Chili Peppers, Faith No More, Primus stuff started coming along, and like all of a sudden, all the thrash bands kind of shifted over to that, and all of a sudden they were like incorporating. It was like thrash funk, and I was like, "Oh no, <laughs> no, like no, like, we don't need to do that." And uh, you know, and then I think just some of the every band started kind of following whatever Metallica did. Metallica slowed down, so other bands slowed <laughs> down, and and uh, yeah, it just changed. You know, like you could just. I don't know, maybe, maybe cause I'm an artist, I'm a little more in tune to it, but I could just sense the change was in the air and, and, mm. and, uh, I wanted to be a part of something different. It's interesting. So sometimes our vocabulary fails us and there aren't words to describe the vibe or the that intuition. Yeah. It's, it's a challenge we need to overcome, but how does the roadrunner signing come about then? How does, um, is it Borovoy who catches wind first? So we start. Uh, we start doing just like warehouse shows and house parties. And, you know, we play a couple of little club shows here and there, but you know, they're 10, 20 people, 30 people. They're outside of town. Our mm-hmm. drummer was from uh Las, our original drummer was from Las Vegas. And so uh, we just started, we did a lot of demo a lot of like rehearsal demos. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like we were hustling, man. Like I was taking, like, if we did a show and we made 50 bucks, I'd take that 50 bucks and like it, and, and it's still to this day the same. Like, it's just always about reinvesting into the band, you know, yeah. like you make 50 bucks. Okay. We're going to make flyers and we're going to make demo covers and we're going to make stickers and we're going to go to the Slayer show that's coming up and every single car in the parking lot, they don't want it, but they're going to end up with the machine head sticker on the back of their fucking car. <laughs> and like we would literally do that. Like we'd fucking hit every single car in the fucking parking lot like you know wow here's your unwanted machine head sticker and then we get a, <laughs> you know we become a free billboard everywhere fucking st- and the stickers i had a punk rock friend uh tim from rancid actually hooked me up with this super killer uh punk rock printer and he would only print if you were unsigned or like on an independent label like if you were on a major label he was like fuck you and uh <laughs> we were unsigned so this dude would make shit tons of stickers for us i mean tons for super cheap so fucking everywhere we went was just and you know people started to you know kind of catch the vibe we were you know we we had a reputation we got we got in a lot of fights we, did, <laughs> we drank a lot and we got in a lot of fights and you know people loved us or they hated us and uh we ended up getting banned from three venues in the Bay Area in our hometown because just from <laughs> fighting all the time. And uh Badge of Honor. But in it, it it was kind of a badge of honor and it got people talking, you know, like people it was like you know, people were talking about the band because of it. And they're like, oh I want to check out this band and our shows were fucking crazy. So, you know, a lot of times we'd have to stop the show 
because it, it like it would just turn into one fight a big fight like that and nobody was having fun we're like dude stop like chill like you know stop fighting and uh <laughs> so you know we kind of started getting a buzz because of because of all that and because the songs were really good sure. and we recorded the demo and then we sent it over to i think we met monty i i had stalked monty <laughs> I had stalked Monty at a uh, a foundations forum, which is like a, it was like an industry event back in the day. I'm not really sure what it was, but like just bands played and you could shop and you know, yeah, kind of CMJ. So yeah, like you promote yourself. It was kind of weird, but uh, anyway, we I ended up tracking Monty down. I got him the demo, and I don't think he was really feeling it. But then Buravoy got the demo, and he really liked it, and so he kind of. I think he kind of got Monty more back on. He's like, dude, this is killer. Like, what are you talking about? Where's Boris at this point? Is he, is he writing? Is it metal maniacs or is he yeah, he's writing for metal maniacs? Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, yeah, we sent it to him at metal maniacs. Right. Okay. I mailed our demo like in snail mail to, you know, wrote him a little letter like, Hey, Rob Flint, Barrett. and you know, that's how he ended up with it. Wow. Wow. And it took and, him including Monty to say. And then so. Monty came out. Monty liked it. And then Monty came out and checked out a rehearsal and took us out to dinner. And him and I hit it off. Like, I really, I liked him. I thought he was cool. And I, you know, I think he was scared of me <laughs> at the time because I was really thugged out. And I don't know. He was just, he liked it. He liked the vibe. He liked the vibe. And, uh, and it was good. We were like, especially at that point, like we were all you know, Adam and Logan had never even been in a band. They had never played on stage like prior to machine head. Like, so everything was brand new. So it was all like, you know, it felt very young and, you know, everybody was just kind of excited to be there. And, yeah. And, uh, and Chris, Chris was there by then. And Chris was, you know, Chris has had been in a bunch of punk rock bands. So he was pretty well known and respected for all the hardcore stuff that he had done, like attitude adjustment and mm-hmm. verbal abuse and, stuff like that. So it was a good vibe. And, uh, and Monty signed us basically sight unseen. He didn't, he didn't even see us play live. Wow. He, okay. Just yeah, on voice endorsement the, and the vibe and then, generally. And then just hang it. He watched our rehearsal, hung out with us, loved the vibe. He was like, I got to sign this. This is going to be fucking killer. Were you so, courted by anyone else? Or was it just Roadrunner that was on your radar? At that we, point? we were courted. Yeah. I want to say we had, we were talking with earache, um, maybe metal blade, a couple of other labels, not a lot though. You know, like people didn't really, we got turned down quite by quite a few labels. In fact, I kept all of the rejection letters from the labels because <laughs> I was just like, fuck you. And, uh, yeah, we got turned down by tools record label. Um, who it, they were on at the time. I can't remember who it was, but it was sort of an independent kind of one-off thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, for me, I really, really wanted to be on Roadrunner. You know, like we, we were talking with other people, but it was almost just to get leverage. You know what I mean? Like my manager's like, we just need to get leverage. And, uh, and, and our lawyer said the same thing. So we were, uh, you know, we were lucky enough to have Joey Houston, our manager, who was very, very business savvy, had a lot of contacts. You know, we ended up getting testaments lawyer and just, you know, we had some good people kind of right off the bat. And so, uh, but I, you know, at the time, Roadrunner was killing it, dude. I mean, Roadrunner was fucking top dog, in my opinion. They had 
Biohazard. They had just had Sepultura, and I guess you know they kind of still had Sepultura because it was like Epic and Roadrunner released Chaos ID. Chaos ID was massive. Yeah. Um, you know they had Obituary. They had Deicide. I mean they were they were fucking killing it. And so, uh, you know, to me, I was like, that just seems like they're gonna get what we're doing. They got money. They've got clout. They've got credibility and 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 not to say that any of the other labels that we were talking to didn't but they were just hot like fucking roadrunner was just in 1993 they were the fucking hottest thing around yeah yeah it's it's interesting when this sort of credibility comes in for me because it seems to be like on that wave when the sepulchre is sort of broken and they've got this roster that you described there that's when the the iron's hot and everyone's hitting it before that point there were still successes like king diamond and merciful fate and crimson glory sure. and, and some other things and some of the new wave british heavy metal stuff but it's the 90s period which is just like it's trend setting i know i think i know what you're saying in the acts have it like you know it's very diverse they've got you know these they've got legit underground huge underground death metal acts with obituary and dsi these are selling you know, selling shit tons of records, you know, 150,000 records for a fucking completely underground, non-major label, not even major label distribution. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's a lot of the things that people, I think, you know, there's, there's this thing that gets said all the time that drives me up the fucking wall. It annoys the shit. I think Slipknot's who started saying it anyway, but Machine Head had the biggest you know, debut in Roadrunner history with burn my eyes and then you know and then that's always followed some jackass always follows it until slipknot's debut came along you know (laughs) and i'm fucking pretty goddamn sure that fucking slipknot started that started saying that shit the difference is when burn my eyes went became that biggest debut record on roadrunner it was a fully independent label every every cog in the wheel from the distributor to the record company to the fuck you name it was independent you know there was no major label anywhere associated by the time we paved the way because of the success of that you know and then other bands coming along too and also having success because of that success roadrunner then linked up with a major label so by the time slipknot drops Mm-hmm. On Ross Robinson, who's the fucking hottest producer on the planet Earth after Corn and Limp Bizkit success, you know, now through a major label, like yeah, of course you fuck, you know, <laughs> if, yeah, it fucking exploded beyond all belief because you had a major label who could go and shoot it off into the fucking universe. Yeah, you know? yeah. we didn't have that. You know, Obituary didn't have that. Bio had Sepultura didn't have that. You know, mm-hmm. all of those bands that paved it. It was truly, you know. When I say this, it was 100% an independent label, yeah, independent yeah. offices, not in the Atlantic building, but like a standalone building all over the earth. It was fucking amazing, you know, to see something that cool, you know, but still, you know, fully independent. Speaking of all the offices and that infrastructure, was the LA office open at this point? Is yeah. that who you're liaising with mostly? No, New York ran the show. Right. How did that feel as an LA band? Because at, at that time, obviously we've spoken about th- those particular bands. Most of them are centered somewhere around New York or have 
a strong relationship with New York, especially when we move further into the nineties. Did it, was it a challenge to integrate? I mean, we're, we're from Oakland. So we're like, we're from the Bay area. So we're six hours North of Los Angeles. So Los Angeles was always just like a satellite office for Roadrunner. Right. They did stuff and they had some great people there, Kathy. Um, they had, you know, some great people there, but like New York ran the show, like New York called the shots, like the whole, you know, the epicenter of, of the music, you know, everything came from there, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. It was the, even though you had like offices in Japan, it was like New York was still like the, the A&R specifically. That was like the, the yeah, I want to say they had, office. when we signed with them, they had offices in New York, LA, Japan, Australia, France, Holland was the main hub. Holland was where it started. So that was the main hub, the UK, Germany, and, uh, and then like some kind of satellite little, you know, like a three labels in one. Yeah. yeah. In like Sweden and Finland and Scandinavia, which is pretty fucking impressive, dude. And the, and the, you know, you got, you went to the main office in, in, uh, the Netherlands and I did. So we got signed, we signed a, we signed a seven album deal with Roadrunner, and as uh, as Case Wessels like like <laughs> once bragged to me when him and I went out to <laughs> to dinner or to lunch one time at this Brazilian sushi place that he loved, he was he was the guy who invented uh, the three sixty deal. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> thanks, like, fucking. But it was it was basically the precursor to a three sixty deal. So we had to sign over our record album rights our publishing rights and our merchandise rights. And that's how they did it back then. You know, they're like, we're an independent label. We need to have as many revenue streams as possible. But if you sign over all those rights, then, you know, we'll make it worth your while by investing more money. And, and the thing that was crazy about it was that usually it was all cross collateralized, which means that if you didn't pay your record advance back then it could get paid back with publishing or royalties we our lawyer and our manager were like never going to happen not cross collateralizing fuck that and uh i remember that being a big sticking point you know when we were negotiating with them but we we just held firm and they eventually agreed to it Mm -hmm. and uh kind of glad we did (laughs) in the long run (laughs) uh but you know it it did. So we ended up getting signing. I go on a press tour and I, you know, I've never been on press. I've never left America. So my first time, my first time going to Europe and I'm mm. on a fucking plane and this is back when planes, like they had a smoking section on a plane. Wow. <laughs> so like if you smoke, you just, you were in the last like 15 aisles. And then like, if you didn't smoke, you were just in the, so I'm in the aisle that's directly in front of the first smoking section aisle. And like every, I mean, I've never, you just back then, like it was just like walking through fucking, you know, like picture the headless horseman coming out of the fog on his horse, like that much fog is fucking cigarette smoke in a plane. I'm like, this sucks. Like, what the fuck is this? And you're, it's 12 hours, you know, it's a 12 hour flight of just endless cigarette smoke. And, uh, so I finally get there. I'm wiped out. You know, I start doing press and, you know, I started, I can't remember where I started. I want to say I might've started in Germany, but it was like, you know, I got there and I was like, wow, man, like this is a fucking big operation. Like they're a fucking real record company. And then I did, you know, I'm flying or taking trains to Belgium and Switzerland and Netherlands. And I got to the Netherlands and it's a fucking gigantic, 
you know, almost warehouse sized office that does blue grape, the merchandise and yeah. fucking, you know, so it felt like, it felt like something big, you know, like just being there and seeing all that, like I could feel that they were, that they could do whatever we needed to do. Really? Uh, so it's, it's kind of like, that's when you realize this isn't just like a, this isn't going into an office in New York and signing a record deal. This is a worldwide infrastructure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. I met Case on that first. I met the owner Case on that first one, mm. on that first trip. What was your impression of him? Um, he was okay. You know, he was. Uh, I felt like he was a little standoffish, but you know, he probably felt the same way about me. <laughs> I might have been standoffish too. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so obviously, the world revolves around Monty. Do you yes. remember anyone else in the office? Because there's some characters, isn't there? Oh, totally. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Monty was a great character and to this day is, you know, one of, you know, I owe Monty my career, you know, like, I mean, I'll, I've said it many times. I mean, he, I owe him my career. Like he's yeah, signed yeah. my band four times now. Like I, <laughs> you know, he continues to believe in me, continues to support us and finance us. And, you know, like he's awesome. And, uh, but you know, like going to the New York office, one of the big characters there was Scott Givens. Uh, Psycho, Mark Abramson was also another huge character. Um, I can't remember the, who the president was, but I ended up, but I hung out a lot with Scott Givens and Mark Abramson. Like, we're not, we're not drinking or just fucking talking metal all night, shooting the shit. Um, I want to say Jen Miola might've been yeah, there. That yeah. was a girl, Jen Miola. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, uh, Sophie Diamantis. Sophie Diamantis was the press girl who was, she was, uh, and she's still awesome. I haven't talked to her in forever, but she was, I loved her. She was so fucking awesome, funny and just fucking crazy. And, you know, mm -hmm. she was, she would date Glenn Benton every once in a while. Like, I mean, she was like telling all these crazy stories like, oh shit. You know, so it was, it was a, it was a wild time, you know. Tell me a bit about Scott Givens because he's, he's a name that's come up a few times, but I don't know anything about him. Was he A and R? Was he something else? I think he was my um, what was he? I think he was my product manager at that point. Right. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think he was my product manager, and Psycho did radio. Yes. Um, Sophie did press. Uh, I think Jen Miola did press as well. Jen Miola might have been later. I I I can't remember. You know, it's fucking twenty six years ago yeah <laughs> you forgiven. Um, but scott givens man scott givens was awesome he's a funny motherfucker he was really he's really big dude like overweight but like fucking like loud and fucking rah, you know like just the fucking <laughs> between him and psycho they were just the life of the party so it was yeah. always good to hang around those guys yeah and monty was not you know monty was never like the life of the party you know like monty was very kind of straight shooter like always talked about music you know he he definitely you know, would offer lengthy uh, opinions on stuff and, you know, like kind of try and which, which annoyed me at first because I was just like, I don't want your long ass opinion. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but like I've come to really appreciate it. Like I've come to really respect it, you know, especially being dealing with so many other uh, record company people now. You know, sometimes you send somebody your music and you're like, hey, you're like, you know, give me some feedback. And they're like, cool. 
<laughs> you know, you're like, okay, you're like, that's cool, but you know, maybe, maybe a little more. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, uh, no, he was, he was great. Did burn my eyes skew the expectations for the band because it was such a such a success? Did it make Roderick think, okay, next one it's going to be gold plano, it's going to be fucking gold plated jets? Uh, you know, I, I think when, you know, no, nobody, I mean, I, we, we delivered an awesome record. You know, they gave us uh they gave us a $35,000 advance mm-hmm. for, to record the record, which is, you know, sizable chunk of money for yes, that time. Yes. Um, we hired Colin Richardson and, uh, we recorded it. At my house, Colin stayed at my house. Colin lived with me while we recorded the record, right? And uh, we did it at Fantasy, which is pretty, you know, which was a pricey studio for the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we hated the mix, like I hated the mix, and Monty hated the mix. The mix mm-hmm. sounded like shit. In fact, every band we I was in, we were in the studio. It burnt, when we were doing Burn My Eyes, Green Day was doing Dookie, Ranson was doing. Uh, something else and then uh tesla was in every band left there and remixed the record someplace else because the, wow it just sounded terrible and so you know we needed more money we ended up going to uh, the studio where nirvana did never mind mix never mind yeah and uh you know they gave us 20 more grand to do that so they gave us in the end they gave us fifty five thousand dollars. wow and you know that was i mean they believed in it that much that they gave us, you know, so well, right off the bat, I was like, that's pretty fucking awesome. You know, like, yeah, like they really, they must believe in this. And Monty had been, Monty came out to the studio when we were tracking, when we were recording burn my eyes and was hanging out with us. And, and, uh, he heard Davidian when he heard Davidian for the first time, he was like, Oh my fucking God. So I think, I think him coming out and hanging out at the studio that first time, like was the only reason we got that money. Cause right. he just believed in it so much after that. He was like, dude, this song's fucking sick. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we ended up going to LA and we remixed it and it turned out uh, that was the final mix that ended up being awesome. Burravoy came out. He was there. I ended up me and Monty came out for the mix, the second mix him and I went and saw corn and the deaf tones at some tiny little 150 capacity club called the dragonfly mm-hmm. and, uh, deaf tones headlining, over corn wow. in LA. <laughs> and uh yeah, that was the first time I saw corn. And then um and then just uh it came out and I think that, you know, we all we all had high expectations. You know, I was I considered myself older at the time. By this time I'm like twenty six now. And you know, I felt old. Like I was like, fuck, I'm twenty I'm over the hill. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> putting my fucking this record out. And like I really wanted like I had a lot of, you know, drive and and I had a very strong vision for how I wanted things to be and look and and uh and sound. Mm. And so I, you know, when we when we did the press tour, like, you know, I just attacked it with a vengeance. Like I just like I I want this, you know, we had I mean, I think we wanted it to sell. What was our thing? If we sold twenty thousand records worldwide, we were, were stoked. You know, we were like, "That'll probably pay back the money we borrowed." <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> you know, and like that's fucking sick for a first album. And oh, and we wanted to open the one show at the Oakland Arena with Slayer, the Henry, which is called the Henry J. Kaiser Center. Mm-hmm. So if we achieved those two things, 
like in our minds, we were the Kings. Like that was, that was, so, you know, our, we, we had what we considered to be high expectations, Yeah, but they were pretty modest really, you know, like, and so the first tour that we did was Napalm Death and Obituary. And wow. We were friends. We had already been friends with Napalm Death because they were they came to violence. I'd met those guys. They were great, great guy Mitch and Shane and um, obituary label mates. Mm-hmm. And you know, I when I got to the UK, I hosted Headbangers Ball. Headbangers Ball was off this off the uh, air in America, but it right. was still on the air in Europe, and it was very powerful. Like it was fucking everywhere, and it was big, and everybody watched it still. And so they had me as the host and it was just like a little short 20 minute segment. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Vanessa Warwick loved me. Like we totally hit it off. She was like, Oh my God. She's like, dude, you're a total natural. Like fucking you need to host every time, every time you come through, just host. I was like, okay, <laughs> like, sure. Whatever. You know, and at the time it was just like, I wasn't doing anything. I just did it and mm-hmm. it ended up kind of hitting. And then they played the Davidian video and it just fucking exploded. Like it fucking, I mean, it was, crazy like we came in top 24 you know in the uk and mm. you know, higher even higher in germany and 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 it, but in america it only came in at like it, i think we sold like a thousand copies its first week or something or like 1100 copies which was great you know like we were like fuck yeah 11, that's killer we're a brand new band nobody knows who the fuck we are and uh but over there it was just so it was a phenomenon. You was know, it like just it was the just UK a, where it, it blew up? Always everywhere, 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 all of fucking Europe, Australia, like it fucking exploded. And we was just like, holy shit. And uh, we're on tour in America and, you know, we're opening, you know, first of three and, you know, we're on a death metal grindcore tour. And, you know, to a lot of people, we were not at all heavy enough to be on this tour. And everybody's like, oh, like fucking just whatever accusing us of buying on or whatever. And I'm just like, we didn't know. look, we're making 200 bucks a night here. <laughs> like fucking nobody bought on to anything. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, Roadrunner did help us with that. Like in the sense that they, they gave us tour support for that, mm-hmm. for that type of stuff. Um, and then about halfway through the tour, all three bands, Napalm death, obituary and machine head were all vying to get the Slayer tour in Europe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fucking Davidian video just exploded. We're coming in top 20. I mean, it was a no brainer for Slayer. Like, Hey, let's get this young hot band and do it. And so, you know, they're only paying us $500 a night. (laughs) So (laughs) That's not enough. It didn't cover anything, anything. So again, Roadrunner, a lot more tour support. You know, they gave us the tour support for that. And, and then that tour, that tour really just solidified everything i mean yeah, it was yeah. you know if, if there's a if there's a second person i owe my career to it's carrie king for believing in machine head he took us on that tour took us on tour in the u.s right after that i mean massive you know cut our pay by you know we were making 250 dollars in the u.s but we were like we were like fuck it we're on tour with slayer you know slayer was my favorite band i'd seen slayer more than any other band at this point mm. and uh you know, it was a huge, massive opportunity and a massive honor to be even asked and, you know, to be allowed to open for Slayer. So, yeah. The, the catalyst for this is similar to a catalyst that I heard speaking to Dino because he mentioned Vanessa Warwick as well. I'm getting this vibe that she's quite central to breaking, or not necessarily breaking, I'm, I'm mincing my words, 
but she seems to have a role in this, in the UK credibility of Roadrunner bands. It might not even just be Roadrunner bands, it might just be good fucking metal, but she certainly has a role there somewhere. Does that sound about right? Could you have any more memories of her? Oh, absolutely. I mean, she was, she was pivotal. And, you know, I mean, she came out, she came out on the road to meet us with Slayer opening night, you know, in Belfast, she was there, you know, we do a big long interview. Um, you know, she was, she was very important. And, and, you know, certainly Roadrunner in the UK had a lot of fucking great bands, man. So, you know, of course she was playing them and they were young and cool and different. And, and so, and she was fun. Like she was really fun to hang around. Like she was a cool chick. She was really mm. tall. And like, she was just like, you know, kind of like hanging out with a dude. She's like kind of tough and she'd like hit you in the shoulder. <laughs> you know, <shit> like that. <laughs> but I, I, I really liked her. And, uh, and she totally just, took a she just felt that i really did great on camera and so just anytime she was there like she, they would be at the fucking london show and she's like hey just can you host the after thing with me and i was like yeah, sure she was with uh i think she was with that a bit, guy in a band at the time warwick, he was warwick, in warwick or something like that ricky uh, warwick yeah and they were yeah there was definitely like a there was another guy um we called him Punkus. His name was Marcus, though. <laughs> Marcus worked in the U- Marcus worked in the UK office, and he uh, he was like the he was the video liaison guy. So he was the guy who worked MTV. Pro- you know, proposed the bands to MTV. Yeah, Mark Palmer. Mark Palmer was the main guy in the UK office, and Mark yeah, Palmer yeah. was like a big yeah. And if you want to go over to Europe, like the big personalities over there that I probably remember was definitely Mark Palmer. You know, me and him hit it off because he loved Rush and he loved Bonded by Blood by Exodus. And I was like, all right, you got, you're a man after my heart here. Cause fucking, you know, Exodus was like my all time. And, uh, so we broke down super hard over that. Alon, this guy, this dude's name, I can't remember his last name, but Alon in the Netherlands. Um, what was they had? They had the big redheaded guy. Um, fucking Stefan, Stefan, I think his name was Stefan Costa. Yes, yes. He was also like a he was pretty big wig over there. Um, in France, they had I think it was the girl. There was a couple a couple of girls. I'm totally brain farting on everybody's name right I now. I can I can help you out here. Um, bear with me. But Stefan Kuster, Alain uh, Vahav is who you were talking about. Yeah, Hank over in Germany. Hank was a fucking Hank maniac. Hacker, yeah, yeah. Hank Hacker. He was fucking awesome. Nora. Nora. Arcee yes, Panyan. in France. Yes, yes. That's it. Why do you think it, it, it hit so much in, in Europe as opposed to the States at the time? I, I mean, I do think that the fact that there was four metal magazines for every single country <laughs> and Headbangers Ball, you know, <laughs> certainly helped. You know, at this point in America, there was maybe two metal magazines, you know, Metal Maniacs, maybe Rip was still going. We got a little bit of coverage in there. MTV Headbangers Ball was off of, you know, completely off. So there was this note. There was, it was almost like this weird transition period in America. Like everything yeah, was yeah. kind of, you know, like I said, like, you know, it was changing. Like it really was changing, you know, like the thrash and even just metal in general, you know, metal edge was kind of going around, but metal edge was like kind of like a poser magazine. And so like they were still catering to like glam rock and it's like, no one cared about that shit. You know, it was like the C and D. It wasn't even like the good glam rock. It was like the C and D league glam rock, you know, mm-hmm. fucking bang tango and you know, shit like that. So, um, 
I do think that it was it was a slower build for us. You know, that Slayer tour definitely like you know shot us yeah. way up yeah. into the public, and that was huge, huge, massive think, opportunity for us. When we think about the, because you are absolutely right in terms of the territories, especially in Europe, when we think about there's like four magazines, there's 300 square miles that you have to cover. It's all fairly simple stuff. But when you go to the States, it's so fragmented. Every, it's every, massive. It's and you've huge. got one or two magazines. Yeah. And if it is breaking down, because I, I knew that metal was perceived to be having a hard time, especially in the States at that time. But it's interesting you say that there's an infrastructure breakdown with the press because there's only two things going. There's two things and there's like a poser magazine and things like yeah. that. And so, then there's so, a lot of local stuff. There's yeah. local metal magazines, but, you know, it was still... You know, when I say that there was four metal magazines per country, I mean, I'm talking like every country had four major metal magazines that were in every newsstand, every yeah. fucking every airport, anywhere you fucking went. Like it was just it was like seeing a people magazine or seeing a time magazine or like, you know, it was just you it was everywhere. And so in, so in this time of um, in this weird vacuum in the States, then how critical are like these flagship brands like Ozfest. Is there anything else like Ozfest at the time? No. Ozfest isn't even going at the time. This is there's there's nothing going. It's just all regular touring. When's know, the first Ozfest? Oz like, like, I want to say 96 is the first Ozfest. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. you know, it's it doesn't seem like a long time, but it's 3 years after Burn My Eyes. So, like mm. there's nothing prior to that in the yeah, metal sense yeah. there's a couple of little local metal festivals and stuff but yeah you know yeah. there's nothing there's no major thing so we're right. just touring. i mean we're just torn and torn and torn we're touring with slayer we tour with napalm and just headlining 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 everywhere you know we'd just get a small package and just i mean in america we're touring you know every fucking pool hall I mean, we're doing 60, 60 tour dates mm. in fucking, you know, two and a half months on the road, living with stuck mojo, like on a bus, 15 dudes on a bus, <laughs> like it's fucking insanity for two and a half months. And, All the uh, while it's still exploding yeah. over in the European territories. Yeah, we do that. And we do that. Yeah. In Europe, we do the Slayer tour fucking app. We're selling more merchandise than Slayer a night. And we only got two shirts like fucking it's crazy. Like it's fucking <laughs> crazy. And, uh, we go over there and then we come, the tour is amazing. We go over to do Europe. I mean, sorry, we do the U S also amazing. And then we come back and we do, we headline the same venues that we played with Slayer. Mm. And we take a young band out called Meshuga who had never been on tour before. And I had been freaking out on their nun EP. Yeah. So we like helped launch their career, you know, and I fucking, I love that band. Fuck. I mm. love those first couple. They were, they were dropping uh, destroy Erase and proof. So it's just fucking night after night. I just watch them and just try and figure out that soul burn riff. Like, what is the fucking <laughs> fuck? That's sick. Jud, 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 jud. Like fucking so good. There's this. I'm trying to piece together this milestone moment for the label. Um, it appears to be Dynamo '95. That appears to be like this weird tipping point where right. because even though why you said earlier like. Roadrunner was like a recognizable brand and it was a very viable sort of vehicle and everyone knew what it was. Dino and I5 seems to be this other beast. Do you have yeah. any memories of that day? Because a lot of people I ask if about stacked their memories. Stacked they... with Roadrunner bands. Yeah. It yeah, was a lot... stacked. Like every day had like 10 Roadrunner bands. It was crazy. Yeah, I remember yeah. uh, 
we we were there for the whole thing because we we ended our European headline tour that segued into Dy- some other festival and then Dynamo, right? And uh, you know we were a fucking machine. We had been on the road for a year straight at this point, like mm-hmm. a year straight, like almost like a week off between tours, two weeks off between. We were a fucking killing machine. Like it was just well, I mean we were killing it, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I just remember. I remember Dog Eat Dog, who I didn't really care about at the time. Like they were a Roadrunner band, they were kind of hot. Like I, but fucking, they blew the roof off the place. I mean, like they just had that perfect kind of party, groovy hip hoppy kind of you know like white boy. Like it was just fucking. They fucking, I mean, it was stupid how much they annihilated that fucking festival. It was crazy. I'll interrupt that just because I was, I was speaking to Howie Abrams last night, um, who was obviously the guy that signed Dog Eat Dog. And I was watching a bit of that set because I love Dog Eat Dog. I think they're a right laugh. And I never really dug deep into that set because that's, that's like the, the big milestone. And then I paused at one point and I see two people in the background and it's you and Monty just stood there like <laughs> Dude, they fucking blew the roof off the place. You know, I can't remember. I I want to. I'm getting. I, we played two of them, and so they kind of blurred us together to me. I think typo might, negative might have played. Yeah, maybe that yeah. was the next one. I want to say Fear Factory might have played, but maybe yep. that was the next one in '95. '95, yeah. People forget okay. that Paradise Lost headlined that night because they were <laughs> waiting for typo. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, Biohazard headlined the night our night. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's who headline, and they killed it. They killed it. Another Roadrunner band, you know, yeah. they fucking slayed it. I think, but they don't. By that point, I think that they were on Warner Brothers. It, they, they got picked up by Warner's. So it was like were, it, was, it was a it was like an incubation deal. Um, yeah. So Roadrunner was, were always by design going to have that Urban Discipline album. Yes. And then they were going to go. They were, they were already on the next record, and but they were just fucking killing it at that point, and they were amazing. Um. Who else did I catch? I don't know. It was fun. My girl, my girlfriend, she's and my wife, Geneva came out. You know, took a bunch of ecstasy. <laughs> took a bunch of ecstasy. Fucking, it was awesome. Like we had the fucking. I mean, it was it was awesome. So many people I asked that question to because for me, like if I'm trying to do a history of Rotary, you try and pick these milestone moments, and everyone goes, it was the it was the most pivotal part of the '90s for the, the label. Great, tell me what happened. I can't. I was shit faced, Jim. Oh my god, yeah, <laughs> fucking shit, so shit faced for so much of it. Actually, I was sober for a lot of the Slayer tour because my I started losing my throat. I started losing my voice singing. I had ended up taking singing lessons somewhere in there to learn how to sing. Never learned how to sing. And so uh, on top as well. But then by the time we got to Dynamo, I was fucking. Ra- I mean, we were raging every fucking night. You know, for me, the set was it was a. Blur- I mean, a hundred and thirty thousand people. As far. I mean, you know, like that saying, as far as the eye can see, it was mm-hmm. people as far as the eye could see. I'm not even like, I'd never, I'd never believed that term meant anything until we played that show. Yeah. You, you yeah. couldn't see the end of the crowd. It just turned into, it just blurred into the skyline. It was fucking crazy. And why it was in fucking sane. Like there was time, like when we started that opening fucking the whole crowd, 60,000 people just fucking the whole front half just jumping. It was f- in, I mean, it was goosebumps. It was fucking goosebumps. And I, I remember, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty competitive person when it comes to like that stuff. Like, and even though I don't feel like I'm competing with a band, but like when I, when I go up on stage, like the only band I want you to remember is machine head. 
Sure. My goal is to blow every band off the face of the fucking earth. And whether I achieve that or not is up for the audience to decide, Mm -hmm. but that's my mindset. Like fucking kill this shit. And, uh, I mean, I'm, if, if I had that mindset for every show leading up to Dynamo, by the time I got to Dynamo, it was like, oh, no, it's fucking like I'm murdering this fucking crowd tonight. This, this, and, is, a, uh, this is a weird a weird question, but I, I feel like I need to ask it, which is when we look at that lineup and knowing that they're all Roadrunner bands, from my perspective is like trying to be objective about it and look at it. It feels like these bands all sound different. They're all metal bands, but they all sound fundamentally different. They've all got their own sort of unique qualities. But there's a thread. There's something in there which brings the story together. And it might be because they're just all on Roadrunner, but there's something else that's, again, it's like words are now failing us. There aren't words to describe this. <clears throat> maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's a family vibe. Maybe it's, there's just something else. It, it wasn't a family vibe. It wasn't a family vibe. There was definitely, there was little, there was little rivalries, you know, like all the bands, like all the bands were pretty competitive, you know, like we, once pe- people started having success, yeah. all the other bands went, oh, they're having success. <laughs> oh, fucking, you know, like for a minute there, all, almost every band on Roadrunner fucking hated our guts because they're like, oh, fucking all the money's going into Machine Head, I guess, huh? you know, like I hear all the grumblings and, you know, like there was a bunch of bands that were like that. And then that in, an, in another way, it kind of brought out this like, competitive juices in all the other bands. Cause they're like, Oh, we, well, machine head just sold half a million. Well, fucking, we want to sell half. We want to sell 600,000. We want to sell 700,000. So mm. it was like, it kind of, it did. I think our success, sir. I mean, it's, I think for fear factory, especially like they were like, no, we want to fucking like, we kind of had kind of gotten to this little thing with them, you know, typo negative, not so much, but like, even like dog eat dog, like they were fucking hot for a minute. And like, they were just like, like everybody kind of did that and and i don't say that in a bad way like it made everybody push harder and dig deeper and i think better music came out of it everyone was bringing something to the party and when they saw what the other guys were bringing that's what that's why everyone sort of belted out it's interesting i bet case fucking loved that that friction yeah, I'm sure he did. I, I mean, I, I absolutely remember like all kinds of like you'd go on the, when I did the press tour for the second album. Like every, I knew every stat for every band. Like, like it must have been like a fucking you know me, internal memo or something. Like, make sure to tell you know so and so sold this and oh they drew this much and you know like it started getting into that kind of shit. You know, hey man, the sound scans out so you can actually take that data. Right. And you can use it for your yeah. maybe not at the beginning, maybe not at the beginning, but yeah, about, about yeah. 93, 94 is when it, it kicks yeah. in, I think. Yeah, but, but you know, for sure, but even up until then, you know, like we were still a brand new band, like we needed tour support from, yeah. from Roadrunner, so like they're still giving us tour support, you know, we're you know, stuff like that. So they did were very ever, they invested a lot. Did you ever doubt them? Was there ever any like because while we this isn't so much a Roadrunner worship vehicle because. But we've got to understand that they did something unlike any other label and they had the efficacy to do it. And we need to understand why. Because people of my generation need to learn to administrate metal, right? We kind of, especially these days where everything is moving so quickly. So the real, the real crux of this entire project is the knowledge transfer. So when I say, did you ever doubt Roadrunner? 
we've got all these things like the infrastructure's there. It's a worldwide body. They're, they're supporting machinery because they know what what value it could have, either monetarily or for the scene. But there are ever any points where you're like, these guys are fucking this up. Um, Even if it's not that bad, it would be late. Yeah, it would be later for sure. Certainly not in the you know, certainly not in the burn my eyes era. I think they did everything right. You know, like take they, me to the take me to the fuck up then. I'll take me to the, the the contentious area if you if you want to. I would say you know like I don't want to say that was a golden era for Roadrunner because you know that it was just my introduction to Roadrunner. You know, like that was my first experience, my first two years experience with Roadrunner. And it was really good. Like it was really, really amazing. Um, you know, your America definitely struggled way behind Europe in like sales and profile and everything, even like, you know, even just like getting press and stuff like that. Like it was just, it was different. I, I never was able to kind of pinpoint why. Right. Um, okay. I was going to say, were they on the back foot or something? But if we can't pinpoint it, we can't pinpoint it. Yeah. I mean, there was great people, people that I yeah, love. Yeah, yeah. It just was always different. You know, like it was just, I don't know, like in some ways Roadrunner over in Europe was viewed, I think people viewed them like as a major force, whereas in America they weren't viewed as a major force. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And so it made it more challenging. And then just the fact that things were changing so much. Um, I'd say like around 98, 99, like, that's when you know the major label connection came through you know by then roadrunner had had like many big successes you know uh the major label thing kind of came into play you know universal sale was what it was um 2001 wasn't it well yeah that might have been the no they were with a major label before that as a distribution Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they partnered with they partnered with it. Yeah. And in, in fact, you know, lot pockets of it, like Germany, I think, partnered with Warner, you know, like all these the major label influence started to be felt, certainly around ninety eight, ninety nine. Interesting. Know, like it, it definitely became about we need a hit single, we need a you know, stuff that I had never really heard before. You know, like okay, stuff okay. that like those type of things that had never like did, no one said, Hey, Davidian's a hit single. <laughs> you know, like it was like just you know, now pressure's on they're starting to sign they're starting to sign other bands that are starting to have success at radio you know so now you're starting to have this kind of like stuff come in Mm -hmm. and um you know it changed and you know i'm not going to say it was a bad thing like we adapted with it too i was kind of you know it another change was happening and you know like i can tell you i've been playing music since 1988 i've seen a lot of things come and go you know, like I've watched a lot of genres. I've watched a lot of trends. I watched a lot of whatever's come and go. And, uh, you know, this was, this was definitely another time when things were changing and I could, mm-hmm. again, sense that things were changing. And, uh, and I think that like, as a band, you got to adapt, man. Like you just got to adapt. Like, you know, the sands, like, you know, Glenn Tipton from Judas Priest once told me the sands of time will bury you you have to adapt. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that, you know, that's stuck with me. That's stuck with me. Really. You know, he told me that in 1996 and it really stuck with me for the rest of my life. Wow. And, uh, you know, that's a dude who's adapted and fucking made Judas priest powerful forever. So, you know, that that's when things started to change. A lot of the, a lot of people changed positions. Some people got, were out now. There was a whole new regime that came in. There was like, you know, Scott Givens was gone and, you know, maybe he was still there, but he was kind of doing something else. And, 
they had a new president now and you know, everything was going through him and you know, it just, it changed. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I don't know if I doubted them. They still, you know, we still got a big advance and we still got lots of stuff. Um, but I do remember that we were in the middle of about right around the time the burning red came out. I mean, obviously slipknot came out at within like our, our two records came out like within like a couple yeah. of weeks of each other. Mm-hmm. And of course, slipknot, you know, fucking <laughs> exp- I mean, the phenomenon that we had in Europe, that was the phenomenon that Slipknot had. Like just, I mean, they're opening for us and it's like the fucking Beatles. Like I can't even, I can't explain to you how fucking insane it was to fucking this, the hottest band on the face of the fucking earth. You know, everybody they're selling, they're selling, they're selling 10 times the merch as all three bands above them are selling, <laughs> you know, like it was fucking insane. And we were just like, what the fuck? Like what they, they ended up on the fucking Letterman show there. I mean, it was just crazy. Yeah. And, uh, so at about that time, you know, probably more jealousy than, you know, not doubting that they could do anything, but again, they got a major label behind them now. Yeah. And so, you know, once the machine kicks in, like they've got that extra layer to kind of kick up the fucking gear. I've never talked about this either, but, uh, during this time, you know, we had signed, like I told you at the beginning, we had signed our publishing over to oh. All Blacks BV, yeah. which was their publishing company. And um, we were in the middle of ne- renegotiating our publishing deal. And at the same time, unbeknownst to us, Case was negotiating selling off all of the publishing catalog to another publisher, okay. which, of course, nobody you know, nobody's telling us this as we're renegotiating that. So we're just about to sign this, you know, renegotiated publishing deal because it was pretty unfair. You know, Mm -hmm. here we are like three albums in, like we've got this fucking piss royalty rate. Yeah. And all of a sudden he sells his entire fucking publishing catalog for roadrunner records, all the bands, all the everything off to somebody else. And this was like fury. Like we were fucking livid. I mean, it like really derailed a bunch of, you know, stuff for us. And this was, this was probably one of the biggest things that I, you know, I don't want to say it was the beginning of the end, but it was like a fucking giant. It was like war from that point on. Like we were fucking like, we did not like Roadrunner at all at this Mm -hmm. point. And so, uh, you know, luckily we were able to salvage, most of the deal with the new publisher. Cause they were like, Hey, we were in the middle of this. This is totally fucked. You know? So like they ended up kind of smoothing stuff. It, who out ate them up? What's that? Who, who was it? Who ate the publishing up? I can't even remember now, but uh, like they did. I mean, it was every, every band on the label, you know, like it was every yeah, fucking yeah. band on the label. Like, you know, he sold his share of the publishing. Okay. And so, uh, you know, which was his right to do because he could do whatever he wanted that he owned it. But like, it was just like, what the fuck? Like you never think that that's going to happen with your shit. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, this is so, 99, is it? Yeah. Say. Okay. okay. When's yeah. the first break? You said the Monty signed you four times. So I'm assuming obviously one is 92, 93. Um, number two, there's a breakup at some point, but I reckon number four is nuclear blast, isn't it? Number. F- yeah. Well, nuclear blast a couple of times. Yeah. On you could last a couple of times. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there's a re-signing for through the ashes, isn't there? Yeah. 
something like can you tell yeah, me we negotiate we negotiate contrary to popular myth uh-huh. we were not dropped by roadrunner uh-huh. we negotiated off of roadrunner based on some contractual stuff that they didn't uh fulfill during the supercharger era and right, so we had them in a we had them in some contractual you know snafu basically okay which i won't been pry into, into things had been promised things weren't delivered you know so whatever but uh you know supercharger was released two weeks after 9-11 so just you know it's like the worst time to release a, a this, is, this is interesting though because so was silver side up and silver side up was I mean, i'm not comparing the apples apples and oranges but it's yeah. it, it it shows they're not shy are they yeah no it's funny too because silver was that after it the day Oh, the day, the day oh, it was released 9/11. on nine eleven. Yeah, it was like, like See, Mark Everton thought that he was gonna, he was worried that God hates us all was coming out, yes. <laughs> and he was that's who he was competing with. He little did he know what was waiting for him that Tuesday morning. But, well, you know the thing is, is I remember I was do, I did the press tour for uh, Supercharger, and I was you know again I mean I'm going to Germany, I'm going to the, I did Japan, Australia, like I went worldwide for this press tour, and everywhere I went. All anybody at Roadrunner was talking about was silver side up, right? Nickelback, Nickelback, Nickelback. Everybody was like, "This is going to be the fucking biggest record of the year," and I was just like, "What?" Like I had never even heard. <laughs> I'd never even heard of it. I didn't even know they were on Roadrunner. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, because the first record came out and it did okay, but like, you know, no one. It, it, it didn't light up the rock world. Yeah. And then you know, this is two thousand one. I remember being in Australia and we had a. They had a like a press thing and i was there and like i was supposed to do press and all he talked about i was so fucking pissed off because all he talked about was fucking nickelback and i'm like bro i'm here promoting my record all your fucking nickelback what the fuck dude i fucking like flipped out on him i'm like what the fuck the fuck but hey he was right like that record came out and that record came out and just like slipknot maybe may have outsold it nickelback shit all over slipknot <laughs> like they blew the slipknot record off the face of the fucking earth yeah so you know there's part two of that story because everybody always follows up oh uh, burn my eyes biggest record until slipknot came along well slipknot was the biggest until fucking nickelback came along <laughs> and fucking blew them out i was gonna ask if blew I slipknot I out yeah <laughs> I, I was gonna ask if, if that changed your perception of the label like from um you know, from from when you initially wanted to get signed to them, but you're already in, at war with them. So that that question is sort of benign, I yeah. imagine. I mean, at this point, I was like, I was pretty unhappy with Roadrunner. I, you know, I didn't like again another regime change happened. They brought in more people. You know, Monty's still Monty's always the solid. Monty's always my guy. Monty's our A and R guy, and I'm all, you know, he's the only guy who I really converse with. And while I do like all the new people that come in, and you know, I've, I've had great relationships with a million of these. You know, Corey Brennan, Slipknot's manager, like he was my product manager on the Burning Red. Like he was wow. the guy who I called up when I was fucking drunk and high on cocaine and yelled at and said, "I need twenty thousand dollars in tour support. Give it to me, motherfucker. Fuck you." <laughs> you <know? laughs> like he was the guy. Like you know, so I know. I know him from that. And, uh, and he's, I fucking, I love him. He's one of the most patient men on earth. He's the best. And so, uh, you know, all these just, but then by this point, you know, so many things had changed, you know, now they've dropped a lot of the death metal bands. Like they've dropped, you know, they really kind of going for nickelbacks and theories of a dead man's. And like, you know, it's kind of getting into that realm. And, and, uh, I don't know. We ended up, we were just, we were just not happy 
I think I think Nickelback was better releasing the record on 9/11 because I just think that they had all that time to make people aware of it mm-hmm. and it was a pretty safe record like it was just nothing but like kind of, you know, pop rock whereas anything you know 3 weeks after 9/11 was I mean the world was in sh- like all people were doing was staring at the TV watching the Twin Towers fall over and yeah. over again like nobody cared about new music we went on tour five days after 9-11 it was like everybody in the audience including us was like why what are we doing here this (laughs) this is the dumbest thing you know like this is crazy like what the fuck are we doing um so how does how does it I think we're in, we're in a space now where I'll just sort of like anecdotally say this feeling that you got in 99 where the, the major influence, the major label influence was seeping in. I imagine by this point it's expounded quite substantially because War, not Warner, Universal now owns a stake and it's like not only are there the influence there, but they're in the fucking room. Yeah. So I imagine that's the state of play. And They weren't in the room. No, they weren't in the room. They were still, Roadrunner was still a 100% independent they had their own offices, standalone yeah. offices. They weren't like part of, you know, even they were, they were part of the distribution. They weren't like in other offices. So those guys right, were in right. the mix, maybe on the phone, but when you went to the roadrunner office, it was still the roadrunner office. Your guys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. So you've, you've negotiated out after the supercharger debacle, which we won't go into. How do you wind back? How does it come it, back around? Honestly, it wasn't a debacle. You know, it sold three hundred thousand records. So, like, oh no, you know, I meant I meant like the contractual every, debacle. The, the, every everybody always kind of tries to shit all over it, like it was some failure. The reason that we negotiated off is because they didn't do things that we had they had promised to do. Yeah. You know that they yeah. had promised us, you know, in person, face to face, that they were going to do. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the record still sold three hundred. In fact, the record in a lot of European countries sold better than the Blackening Supercharger. Amazingly, yeah. all these years later. You know, so dude, I have I have no beef with Supercharger. That was yeah. like that was when I first first heard this year. But when I say debacle, I meant the contractual debacle, right? Right. Which we're okay. probably legally obliged not to talk about. However, <laughs> yeah, it was just no. They just like they had promised some stuff and they didn't deliver. You know, like financially, yeah. whatever. So, but how does it come back? They, to, how does it wind back in, in through the ashes? Anyway? Well, if you're in the music, if you're in the music industry and you're in a band, what everybody tells you probably back around this time certainly was. Oh my God, your band should be somebody, you know, every band by this point is on a major label, like every fucking band. And so mm. like, Oh my God, you should be so much bigger. You should be so much better. You know, this, that, the other thing. And you know, if you do this, I can get you signed onto our label. And so as soon as you get oh, out of your contract, we'll get, get you on my label. And oh, like, no. yeah, you know, these are like your friends, your colleague, you know, these are like your band buddies. And like, you know, you start to believe it, even though you shouldn't believe it, like, but you start to believe it. And we get off and we're like, you know, finally we're like, all right, like we're here, like we're free, like sign us. And they're like, slow down. (laughs) (laughs) Slow. Let's hear some demos. Let's, and we're like, wait, what? Like, you know, we've, we're fucking proof. We've got 2 million records sold. Like we've sold 2 million fucking records at this point. Like, what do you mean? Like you need to see some demos. Well, you know, and it's like, we end up getting rejected by 35 labels. Fucking hell. You got all, have you got all the rejection letters though? I did. They weren't letter. There were no more letters at this point. Like it's just like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or emails or whatever. Uh, or, or just like, you don't hear from them. That was, that became the thing. Like you just don't hear, like they just cut off all contact from you. 
<laughs> like that's what the music industry does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, so we go, we, st- I mean, obviously we still draw a lot touring wise. And so we go back over to Europe and we're doing some touring and Mark Palmer from the UK comes out to the UK show, which I think was the first or second show. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I really want to get you guys back on Roadrunner. I really want to do this. Like you still sell shit tons of albums out here. Like let's like, like we'll make you a great offer. Like let's do this. And I was like, fuck. Okay. And then we go to other European shows and you know the people from the German office come out. They're like, look, I don't know what the fuck happened in America, but we still love you guys. We want to have you guys out. So this kind of gets a ball rolling. And then, uh, America kind of gets in and Monty's just like, Hey, like I hear like the Europeans want to resign you. Like we, we want to resign you. Like let's try and get, so we start recording the record and we're paying for the record. Like we're doing this all on our own. We're not getting an advance from anybody. We're just paying for this. And, uh, when we're on the last day of recording the album, we've, we've signed the deal with Europe and America's supposed to pick us up. And then the last day America passes on us and Monty Connor was not able to, you know, he believed in it, but he couldn't get everybody else at the U S label to kind of get behind it. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow. We, uh, had kept the fact that we were unsigned up until that point, a secret. Mm-hmm. You know, like just at least publicly, we hadn't mentioned it, our label status, as is very common in yep. you know, the music, you know, bands change labels. They don't really say that they change labels. Yep. And, uh, but I, I say it at this point because now it's like the record's going to come out in Europe and not America. And this is before iTunes, this is before, you know, so this is still CDs and you yes. know, vinyl's dead, you know, Brick it's and just CDs and, and yeah. And so, uh, we're like, well, we're just going to keep on doing it, man. Like we're going to put us out. We're going to get a label in in America and we'll put it out. And so we put it out and again, Europe fucking explode. It's fucking phenomenal. The tour does amazing record does amazing roadrunner. America sees that success and goes, okay, well, mm, all right. Well, so then they come back and they, you know, make us an offer and it's just like, well, slow down. <laughs> Hold your horses. It's going to be a little bit different this time. Just, uh, we're all clear here, you know, like, we're not going to give you our publishing. We're not going to give you our merchandise. We're not, you know, like all the, all the, all the weird, funny stuff that went on before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so we ended up working out a, uh, what is it called? A licensing deal, which is where you, you know, we kind of, we're partners with them basically. You know, so like we, you, did they, so what was the label they were licensing from then? So they were li- just licensing the music from us that we nice. were retaining it. You know? Nice. So, yeah. Big, big so energy. It, it was a big, it was a big move. And, you know, coming from, you know, coming from the thrash background that I came from, you know, like yeah. it was all about DIY shit. You know, when I, when I started doing this band, it was all about hustling demo tapes at shows and fucking selling merch out of the backseat of car, you know, out of the trunk of my car. Like it was, mm-hmm. and it was back, back to that. And it's just like, that's how we're going to do this from now on. We're going to keep this controlled in machine head. It's going to be, you know, more money, less money in advance, but more money on the back end, you know, mm-hmm. that type of stuff. So, you know, it's taken a gamble, you know, and as long as that gamble pays off, it'll be, you're going to make a lot more money in the end. And, and that's what we needed to do. We needed to do that. you know, again, going back to how I started this, like carving your own path, forging my own destiny. Like I needed to do that. I needed to feel like I was in control of this and not like at the whim of some record company. So it's so interesting. I'd love to hear what conversations had to happen in New York to allow it to happen because that is like, 
There's a boilerplate contract, then there's a roadrunner contract, and you took a fucking ten ton hammer and built twenty tended to that to that. Um, well, the record was done. See that, that, and that was the big difference, right? The record was done. It was already a huge success. It was proven, yes. and so like they didn't have, you know, we had the leverage at that point because yeah, it was yeah. like, look, we fucking, you know, we had other labels that were like all about it, and so, you know, it oh, was, it was, it worked out in the end. Wow, wow. Could ashes have happened in the way? Could it? Could that album be written in the way that it was written without that strife happening previously? Do you think? You think that turmoil is kind of like what drove that as well? Certainly, moments of it. Yeah. 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 Certainly, moments of it. You know, a song like Imperium gets written because I've just been rejected by thirty-five labels, and I've been rejected by. You know, I'm I'm in some weird purgatory where I might be signed in America, and I'm like, mm-hmm. fuck everyone, yeah, fuck yeah. everything. You know, Jeez, I'm laying this shit all on the line here, and uh, and yeah, that's you know, music. If music is a reflection of where you are as an artist at that time, that's exactly where I was. Fucking um, hell, yeah, that's pure insanity. That's, that's that is an arc, <laughs> and we're not even got to the blackening yet. So, in a kind of the spirit of the 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 success of Burn My Eyes on the independent capacity, you know, great selling debut on this independent infrastructure, you get nominated for a Grammy as well. That won the blackening, yeah. Yeah. Did you give a shit? What were the stakes at this point? Um. Well, the blackening came out was, you know, huge success also, you know, which followed a great success from through the ashes. I mean, mm. you know, massive, massive, uh, you know, tours and records and, you know, we're playing arenas, um, in Europe, I should say. Yeah. Uh, it's funny cause we get that, we get the news about the Grammy when we're in Italy in Milano and probably the smallest show on the whole tour. <laughs> it's like a club show. <laughs> so it's just like, we went from playing arenas and then we're like, okay. And then we're here like, Oh, we're back at a club. All right. Whatever. <laughs> five band bill on a fucking club and uh but it's great news and it's i mean it's pretty amazing and uh slayers nominated for a bonus track from the same album that they won for the year before and we're like slayer's gonna win this you know this like fucking because they're the name you know it's the name Mm. and uh and then yeah i mean it it was it was a big honor we were stoked i mean we were very stoked i mean it was like it, it didn't even seem I didn't even like, I didn't care about the Grammys. Like I hadn't watched, like up until that point, I hadn't watched the Grammys in probably 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I never followed it. Um, they had the, the metal category was pretty new. Like they never really respected metal. And I still, I don't think they still do, you know, like it's yeah. always, in, it's in the other building, you know, it's on the internet. Like they don't even broadcast it as part of the show. Like it's on the fucking internet. And, uh, <laughs> But I, but I just remember being like, wow, like I totally didn't see that coming. And like, holy shit, like we just got nominated for a Like I'm going to the Grammys. Fuck yeah. You know? And so I was more stoked about going to the Grammys and getting to see like whatever, who else was performing and just being there than like really if I was going to win the Grammy. You got the goodie bag. Yeah. You got the goodie bag. It had like a medal. It had a, I have still have the medal. It's like a Grammy medal. Um, it had like some other stuff. I think it had like some cheap booze and, you know, a couple sponsor shit. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it was good. I, I didn't like. We didn't get dressed up. I was like, I'm not going to get dressed up for this shit. Like, I'm just going to go like a metal dude. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> um, but we went there, and then Slayer won, <laughs> as we as we suspected. And t- Carrie King texted me right after it, and he was just like, "I'll take the Grammy, but you should have won this." <laughs> it was like, I, just, I fucking won for this record last year. What the fuck? You know, like made it was just like it just got re-released because it was put out originally on Columbia, then it got redistributed through Sony. So they get like they re. I was like, this. Sh- why is the same record even yeah. up for nomination? <laughs> oh well, they changed distributors. I was like, it's okay. Not the same. That's uh, inter- it, it's it shows though how metal as a thing had come on because it was allowed to be disruptive on that level. Even though Uriah is in a different building, it's not broadcast. It's still a step. You know what though? It should be on the main show. We write our own songs. We play our own fucking instruments. We fucking sell shit tons of records and play to shit tons of people. You know, the, the, the category before us was Hawaiian instrumental music. I'm like, (laughs) fuck, you know, like, Look, all due respect to anybody who plays instrumental Hawaiian music, but like, look, you're making money off of it. You're getting nominated for awesome. You know, it's hard as it is to make music and make a living off of music. Good for you. But what in the fucking fuck? I was just like, dude, give me a fuck. We're doing shit on a whole other level above this. Like we deserve some fucking, you know. Oh, no, well, I look at well. dude. Some of these fucking musicians in metal bands are fucking ridiculous. Like the fucking level of musicianship is fucking insane. You know, like the fact that it isn't honored, and what is honored is music that's written by committee. You know, most of the people are just singing a song that someone else wrote. Mm-hmm. You know, or but it's like it's fucking lame. You know, it pisses yeah. me. It still pisses me off to this day. Still, it's fun going. Took my parents with me to the fucking Grammys. I was like, you know, it's just like a big deal. Like I made it a big deal. It was cool. <laughs> to wife. It was. It was. It was nice. How did the Black Crusade come about? Because that's that to me. That's my dynamo. Because I, I was the right age for that. I got shit faced on a Ferris wheel in Manchester, then just rocked in in time for Arch Enemy. It was a, the guy wouldn't let us on with the bottle of Jaeger. So I said, what if we go into McDonald's? And got a large Coke, tipped the Coke out and put the Jaeger in. Would you let us on then? He was like, yeah, go on then, boys. And we got fucking shit-faced. And then came to that show in Manchester. It was awesome. And that, oh, was, like, that was like another sort of like all road. Oh, my God. That Manchester show was fucking ignorant. It was so good. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. How did it count? Whose design was it to go, we're going to do this thing called the Black Crusade. It's going to be stacked full of Roadrunner bands and Arch Enemy, who I don't think were on Roadrunner at the time. No. Um, and it was very, very of its time it was beautifully yeah dragon force as well within human rampage that came out it was like everything you'd want of someone of my exact demographic and as a metalhead who's you know being raised on that time so how did that come about was that by design or was that like just you picking that you know what matt heafy came up to me we were on tour with trivium at that point it was lamb of god trivium machine head and gojira and we're out Mm. in the u.s and he said hey we've been kind of working on a tour with uh, Dragon Force, would you guys like to do it? Like, and I was like, well, I was like, we'd probably have to headline, you know, like, cause just that's, we'd probably have to headline. And he's like, that's cool. And I was like, yeah. And I was, I was like, I was like, I think it'd be sick. And he's just like, I think it'd be fucking super sick. And I was like, 
let's fucking put the ball in motion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just, I was working out and he came in and we both started working out in my dressing room and, and we, that conversation just happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the managers got involved and kind of started putting together. And then next thing I know, arch enemy, Charlotte's falls. And I was like, wow, this is turning into a big fucking thing. And then we, and we, we booked it thinking it was going to do good and fucking, it just exploded. It was massive. Yep. Massive, it, it, massive tour. For my from consumer perspective, it was like sometimes like some people like circle download. That's like on the calendar. That's like that's the weekend of the year. That's when they cut loose. That's their thing. And it's like a traditional, it's a it's a staple of their being to be an anarchist that weekend. But when Black Crusade came about, we had a little blue pen and we'd put that over there in November because we knew that was gonna be an incredibly special day. And it, it delivered in fucking spades. And it should happen again. I'm sure everyone tells you that, but you know, it's it's just one of those gigantic. And because I'm, I'm, in, I'm into live sound now, like I do gigs and stuff, so I understand the logistical fucking behemoth it must take to pull something like that off. So it's like a scale hitherto unknown. Yeah, it was it was big. It was a lot. We had a lot of we had a lot of crew, <laughs> a yeah, lot of yeah. things to coordinate, but it worked. It did fucking great, man. It yeah. was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, this is something that I was going to mention at the beginning, but I completely forgot. As I have these conversations about Roadrunner, I you and we come to the end of like the Roadrunner independent life. I nick a term from you, and it's the Red Wedding, which is perfect, absolutely perfect. No other fucking now knows. You're fa- now you're fast forwarding pretty far. To, if you want to go to the Red Wedding, oh. I wanted yeah. to make Roadrunner United like its own thing, but I can't okay. go. I, you can do that first if you want. Well, the Red Wedding. Yeah, let's go chronologically because. That would be, I Make, think Urban Reunited would have been before Blackening even. Really. Yeah, it was, it was 2005. So, so I'll open up with a question from my mate, Alex, who says, why isn't the dagger part of the machine head set? Because it's like, it encapsulates everything brilliant about that period of sort of like mid 2000 metalcore for me personally. And I think the chops in, in machine as it stands could definitely deliver on that. Yeah. I, you know, like. We've we've actually been doing you know I do the electric happy hours. Jared yes. and I have been doing yes. it at the electric happy hours. It's fun as fuck. Yeah. It's killer. It'll probably make a comeback now. Yeah. You know, yeah. my former drummer couldn't play it, so like now I have a drummer who can play it. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. I'm yeah. Extremely happy about that. So tell me about the the, the project. The project itself was, I think it's underappreciated how ambitious it was because logistically getting like four musicians from different bands, different backgrounds, different schedules in a room is a fucking nightmare so when monty rings you up presume is that how it happens is monty ring you up and say you're a captain now you are the captain now he said yeah he rang me up and he said i want to make you the captain and i was like no i was like i've been on tour for 20 months i'm fucking exhausted like i'm at my you know i've still got three months of touring to go i just had my first kid like i'm this is not I don't have the energy or the time to commit to this, let alone four songs to write, to just give away to this shit. And, uh, and then he's just like, all right. And then I think another month goes by and he calls me back. He's like, Hey, I want to talk to you about this Roadman reunited thing. And I was like, dude, I was like, I've been on tour for fucking, I'm like, dude, I've been on tour for 20 fucking one months now and I'm exhausted and wiped out. I, my wife's about to divorce me. Like, I'm like, you know, I've been <laughs> gone forever. We just had a kid. Like I need to just go home and not fuck around with some, you know, I still got another machine head record to write. 
and uh, he's like, uh, okay. And then uh, we, Dimebag got shot, and we had two or three more tour dates after, and I ended up getting this crazy sinus ear infection at the end of the tour. And this is, mind you, this is the end of an 80 day tour. I've been on tour for 80 days, literally around the world in 80 days, not no exaggeration. Like I went from California to Japan, to Australia, to Europe. Now I'm going back to California, 80 days. days. I'm fucking wiped out. I'm losing my voice. (laughs) I've kept this brutal infection and we're in Greece. The tour ends in Greece and it's a long flight home from, it's got to go to Greece to Switzerland, Switzerland to the UK, UK to back to California. Right. Greece to Switzerland, my fucking ear. It's like someone's jamming a screwdriver into my fucking ear. I can't even fucking think. I'm like, I've never felt pain like this. I have no idea what's going on. I'm freaking out. It's three in the morning. I'm like, I'm fucking wiped out. And, uh, I get on the next plane and I say, Hey, can I, you know, everything was closed in the airport. It's like three in the morning. And I asked the stewardess, Hey, can I get some, uh, like some, Sudafed or something my ears are really like my ear is killing me she's like your ears hurting what's the matter i was like i just took another flight it was like it really fucking hurts can you give me some aspirin or something Mm. she comes back she goes away and she comes back and she's like sir um i'm gonna have to ask you to get off the plane and i'm like what and she's like i'm gonna have she comes up like gets now she gets all the fucking other stewards involved and like like big old i'm fucking i'm pissed i'm like what the fuck are you even like what the fuck are you even talking i'm going home i've been in tour for 80 days i'm going home and uh the captain comes and the captain comes back he's like sir please come up here to the cockpit and talk to me and he's like if you fly your eardrum's gonna explode and you're not gonna be able to hear out of it for six months and I was like, what? And I'm like, he's like, this is super common. He's like, it's, it's an unsaid thing that we don't really talk about in the airline industry, but I'm guaranteeing you right now, your eardrum's going to explode and you won't be able to hear for six months, dude. I'm like, I'm fucking crying at this point. I'm like, all I want to do is go home. I'm fucking physically, mentally exhausted. Like my friend just fucking got murdered on stage and fucking it's horrible. Like it's horrible time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I got to grab all my shit. I get off. I go into Switzerland and, uh, you know, I'm just depressed. I'm just completely depressed and I'm fucking can't see my wife and kid. And Monty calls me up. He's like, Hey, you know, I heard what happened and he heard about what happened. So, yeah. And he's just like, but I wanted to bring up this. Road road again. <laughs> I'm like, you fucking dick. And he's just like, so he's just, I'm like, so I listened to his spiel and, you know, at the, I don't, maybe just cause of like where the headspace I was in or what I was at, but I was just like, I started having like, I write a lot of songs in my head and, uh, and then I was like, I had, I had already started kind of formulating a song. It was the dagger. I started formulating the riff for the dagger. And, uh, I was like, you know what, dude, like, I think I could do it. You know, I, I, I just felt like I needed to make music, like thing about, you know, dime bag and, you know, just everything. I just, I, I felt like I needed to make music and get music out. And I was like, I, I'll, wow. I'll make time. And I talked to my wife about it and she was like, yeah, you know, I was like, it's a pretty big deal. Like making me a captain. Like it seems like it's a pretty big deal. So, uh, so I did it. And then I just said, you know, I kind of started writing in mind, like who I wanted to sing. So, you know, I was like, I want, I'd like Howard because I thought Howard was, killer singer i wanted Corey taylor and max 
and then I didn't, and then we had another song for the Army of the Sun. I didn't know who I wanted, so we went through a couple of singers actually, and we had a couple different versions of that with their other songs. But yeah. then Tim Williams from Vision of Disorder ended up with that one. Yeah, but it was it was cool. It was it was, I mean, more so than Monty, I would say Laura Richardson, who Colin Richardson's ex wife was the big coordinator of that. She was fucking amazing. You know, like there was so many people that were supposed to be on it and then dropped out and then you know she had the fucking herd cats and you know got i don't know how many fucking 75 different musicians to commit to doing solos and this is and that's is and it's 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 still like a fucking killer it's one of my favorite albums it's so strange how like in not like it's not an ancient industry it's like in in the recognizable format that it is the industry is like 50 years old metal is 40 years old and we all like the things that we love about metal are usually these arcs in particular bands and then this fucking thing comes along which sounds all in the way it's constructed kind of feels like a pie record as if everyone just sort of like you get in here get in here let's do some song and it just comes out really well and i don't know how many songs must have been left on the cutting room floor and there must have been a few because i can't imagine all i think what I think it's either 12 or 14 songs in total and they're all fucking killer. There's not a bad song on that album. Yeah. I, I mean, I wrote four, so I don't know if anybody else wrote more, but I wrote four songs. That was nothing got left on the cutting room floor. No, but it was fucking brilliant. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thanks. It was fun. It was fun doing it. You know, I had a kind of a core band and then I just brought in other people, you know, Christian yeah. from fear factory was on there. Yeah. Uh, Andals, from Chimera was my drummer. And then I had Jeff Waters from Annihilator do leads. And then I had the different singers and the singers, Howard actually came out to Oakland to sing. So that was how that came about. Like, you know, I was, he was just supposed to sing it. I wasn't supposed to be on the record. Mm. I didn't mm. want to sing on the record. I just wanted to write and kind of be behind the scenes. And as we were jamming, he's like, dude, let's fucking sing this together. <laughs> Are like, you surprised that, that, that people still sort of revere it today? I know, I know I'm not alone. I know there's a lot of people who fucking love that record. People love that record, dude. Like yeah, fucking yeah. people love that record. Like, yeah. I, I don't, yeah. I mean, like every time I, I brought it up a couple of times, I guess it was the 15 year anniversary last year or something. And I mm-hmm. put up a little post about it and fucking hell, like so many people went crazy on it. They were just like, fuck, I love that record. It's, it's cool. It's very cool. Cause it's such a, such a collaborative effort from so many people and so many different, you know, different minds and different bands. And it's a really, I mean, maybe one of the most unique experiences I've ever done. And it's just unorthodox. Most of the people celebrate label histories with just the party. <laughs> right. Yeah. The show was cool too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. Crowd, totally. crowd was dead. Crowd sucked, but the fucking show was cool. Free bar and whatnot. Yeah, that the crowd was just like, what am I watching? Like, I don't know this record very well. <laughs> like, fuck. like, that's industry people. Like, it was fun, though. It was a good time. Would it, did they even sell tickets to it? I've, I've heard, like, sort of a bit left and right. Some tickets were sold, and there was some which were like, and it wasn't expected to be a sellout. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't even remember. <laughs> which is appropriate, I guess. Given yeah. <laughs> we got, oh, my God. We got fucking hammered that night. And then I played Monty a bunch of um, blackening demos. At the, I went, we all went back to my hotel and got even more drunk. And then I played Monty and Burvoy and a couple other pe- metal hammer people and some other stuff. I played them some blackening demos while we were shit face drunk. <laughs> what did Monty say then? If you remember to those demos, I think he was digging it. I was play, I played him aesthetics of hate. Um, 
I just had like little pieces. I didn't even have a lot. I had just like pieces of songs, pieces of like Beautiful Morning and some other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's, I love the blacking because it's, there's suggestions from Ashes where that's going. There's suggestions that it's going to end up what it ends up as the blackening. But it's such a refined piece. It's like, it's almost like it's been written for five years, but you just took a fucking knife and cut the fat off it. And on, the only thing left was the substance. Was that expected? Did you expect it to go that way? No. I mean, we we wrote, I mean, the fir- I, I think the first three or four songs we wrote for The Blackening, we just ended up shit canning. <laughs> for no, I mean, just we tried <laughs> to work on them and they just kind of went nowhere. And we're like, yeah. And then the first four songs that we ended up, that ended up on The Blackening were the four shortest songs on the record. So aesthetics beautiful morning slanderous and now lately down yeah so you know for the first five months that we wrote music for that record and we wrote we probably wrote for 12 months yeah uh there was no indication that we would have 10 minute long songs or like these songs that went on this you know like it was all fairly like you know straight ahead and then clenching came along and then halo came along and then it was like the roller coaster and that's when it was like I think we, and I don't even believe we didn't even realize they were as long as they were. Mm. And then we timed them one day and we're like, 10 minutes. What the <laughs> fuck are we doing? Like, like this is, we're, I had a freak out. I was like, we got to trim the songs. This is ridiculous. Like, fucking, you know, and it, we ended up trimming the songs back to like six minutes. And, mm. and it just took the fucking, it was like taking the loop, the loops out of a roller coaster. Like, it just, it wasn't as fun anymore. And I was like, well. <laughs> Let's see what ha- I hope people get this. <laughs> like, I've never. There was a lot. If you, every time I watch an interview that I do from the blackening era, it's I was like, I hope our fans get where we're going with this. Like, I don't know why we wrote four ten-minute-long songs, but here you go. Monty, in in your interview with him, he refers to like this era as shitting lightning for the second time. Is that a fair? Do you think that's a fair assessment? Did it feel like that? For sure, it did. It it was just, it was just a crazy, like, you know, renaissance, you know, like it was like ashes and then it went into fucking Roadrunner United and then it went into black. It was just like this crazy fucking run of like just success after success after success. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is the point now with like towards the end of the blackening era, the the major label influence is going to get stronger because obviously there's the one acquisition and then we're, we're, we're getting closer to das red wedding yes why did you call it the red wedding where did that come from i know we it comes were, from game of thrones but did, was yeah. it you that called it that or was it like someone yeah, else i called that that yeah i it's called all it you it was there the fucking go. red wedding it was, i mean well we did locust and you know locust was locust did great and uh but that was and that was our last record with them so that yes, was our yeah. in the contract so we were contractually done and uh we started looking at other labels and you know started putting the feelers out like hey we're available and we're not necessarily not into re-signing with roadrunner but mm-hmm. you know by now this is like dude this is like the 10th regime change that we've gone through and yeah. you know i'm just like I might be ready to start over somewhere somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like we're going to look and I'm going to really consider, you know, my manager's doing all this. I keep on saying I, but like my manager is the one who does all this shit. (laughs) I'm just like, (laughs) and then he just passes it along to me. But, uh, but, but, but my mindset was 
I might be ready to to move on to someplace, you know, sure. like, I, you know, but but you know, like it's comfortable being at Roadrunner, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of like my mindset at this point. And so the records, the the album cycle's done, the tour cycle's done, the record contract's done, and you start meeting with people, and I get a great vibe from a lot of people. You know, really good vibe from tons of labels. You know, and then we go and meet with Roadrunner. And I'm like, it just, you know, we were ready to re-sign with Roadrunner. Mm. And we were right, we were getting through negotiations and we're going through all the, you know, it's fucking all this bullshit. Every yeah. fucking <laughs> word's got to be, you know, this takes forever. And uh, we kind of get held up on this one little, I can't even remember what it was now, but it was the very minor thing. And like, man, they were just not budging on it. Mm. And it was something so stupid to me. And I was like, what the fuck dude? Like, you know, it really started souring me towards the label. Cause it was just right. such an unimportant thing, but they were just like fucking gotta be this digging one. their fucking, you know? And I was like, and then Michelle Kerr called me up and she said, dude, Roadrunner just fired 90 people. And I was like, she's like, they just closed every office in England, Netherlands, France, Germany. I was like, what? Mm. And then the news broke, you know, the news broke on blabbermouth. Whatever it was. And I was like, holy fucking shit. And then, you know, Monty calls me up and he's like, Hey, I just want to let you know that Roadrunners let me go. And I was like, what? Like, this is fucking insanity. Like mm-hmm. what the, why the fuck would they let you, you built that fucking label, yeah. you know, yeah. fuck Nickelback. Like Monty Connor built that fucking label, mm-hmm. you know? And even if you didn't think that Ron Berman who signed Nickelback, he's also gone. So all I yeah, know. Right. Right. I mean, like it was, it was, uh, dude, 90 people in one, I mean, just fucking decimated, closed every office. I mean, all those, I just named all those independent offices, those standalone offices, all gone now, you know, not gone at that moment, but you know, like we're going to close these. And I was like, whoa. And then the people from Roadrunner call me up. I think I want to say it was Dave Rath and Dave, shout out to Dave Rath. Cause I love Dave Rath. He's fucking great. You know, mm-hmm. like I still, I still talk to him and still love Dave Rath, but he calls me up. He's like, look, just sign the deal. Like fucking everything's going to be okay. And I'm like, everything's going to be okay. Everything's not going to be okay. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, dude, er, fucking the brakes just got pulled, you know, like fucking <laughs> we're slamming like on everything right here. Like, are you insane? He's like, look, it's we're going to stabilize right now. And then, like, you know, Amy Schiaretto, who, like, you know, she was our publicity person there. She calls me up like, oh, my God, I'm fine. Like, it was just insane. Like, all the, you know, I talked to I talked to everybody because all there was so many long-term people there. Mark Palmer, you know, all these people. Hmm. The aftermath must have been fucking crazy. Like, uh, did you play Download 2012 or am I misremembering that? Yeah, we did. So you, some, you must have been sat behind because that was two months after the Red Wedding. Oh, I fucking oh, love it? saying that to someone who knows what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Was it? Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I guess it was around May or something, right? It is first, second weekend of June. So it was like oh, two okay, months after you. the Red Wedding takes place. And okay. you must be stood behind the main stage with a bunch of other Roadrunner acts who are like, what's going, what's going on, boys? 
There must, yeah, there must be some yeah, weird complacency. What, what, so when did the Red Wedding happen? April 2012. Oh, April 2012. Okay, yes, so yes. yeah, two months later, we do download. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And we're all just like, what the fuck just happened? And we were already free. Like, we were like, we don't care. Yeah. Like, we were, we're done. <laughs> like, we just happened to, it just lucked out that our contract ran out, you know, right around that time. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I just remember, to, I, you know, I and then... Uh, by that point, download 2012, there had been a second and a third round. Yeah. So a second round of people, I want to say like 30 or 40 people got canned. Mm-hmm. And then another round where like another 15 to 20 people got canned. Mm-hmm. And the president was still there. And he's, still, he's calling me up. And he's just like, it's going to be okay, Rob Jonas, Jonas, Jonas Nash. And yeah, yeah. Jonas. And we were close. And I still like Jonas. I always like Jonas. But, uh, he's calling me up just like it's gonna be fine it's gonna be fine the next thing i know jonas is fired and i'm like oh my god <laughs> like it just never it just didn't stop like you know the one person like look rob it's gonna be okay and then fucking that person's gone now i'm like fucking christ yeah it was yeah, crazy yeah. i mean it was really just like it was the brutalest thing i'd ever seen in the music industry like just fucking ruthless did it feel like the end of an era as well because like this this vehicle has it been like absolutely the end of an era I mean, yeah. it was, it, it, I mean, that, you know, I mean, I'm probably romanticizing as we do, this, yeah. you know, but like, honestly, the era ended way before the red wedding. You know what I mean? Like there was so many other eras that had ended and this was, this was a new era mm-hmm. that we were mm-hmm. in, but it was, it was already different by this point. Yeah. You know what roadrunner in 2012 when the red wedding happens was nothing even remotely like the Roadrunner of 1994 yeah, when yeah. i go over to do my press tour you know what i mean like it was so many things had changed along the way mm-hmm. and it was probably almost inevitable and i mean what a run what a fucking run and you're not to you know and roadrunner's still going sure like they've got their thing you know like they're in, with atlantic now and it's you know it's probably more in name only but you know it's still a great name and they still have still a great catalog but it was it did felt it did, felt like that absolutely you know it's just like wow this is never ever gonna be the same and at that yeah. point uh, at that point, Nuclear Blast was really smart and, you know, cherry picked all the great Roadrunner people <laughs> and brought them onto their record label, including Monty Connor, who then, yeah. you know, proceeded to sign me there. Who keeps going on from strength to strength. Yeah. And that's that's it for the Roadrunner stuff, man. Is there, any, is there anything I might have missed? Are there any like, stories or any observations you may have made while I've been taking you down this memory lane? I always, I, I always enjoyed the Roadrunner Christmas parties. They used Tell to have them everything about this. I've heard a few things. Have, they used to have them in New York. They were super fun. I mean, they, I think Joey Jordanson like banged some chick on like Case Wessel's desk one night or Jonas's desk or something. <laughs> it's, it is a strange thing to ask people, and I really appreciate you taking me like down your side of it. You know, it's 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 an interesting story. It's an interesting arc um, for an interesting label and an interesting vehicle that was incredibly disruptive. No, it's great. I mean, it's great thinking of all that stuff. And, you know, I don't really talk about the business side of it very much. So I think that'll be kind of interesting for people to hear, you know, like certainly our record deal from 1994. Yeah. I mean, I, I consider myself lucky to have been part of 
Roadrunner Records. You know, they invested millions of dollars into my band and yeah. I'm forever grateful for it. You know, I had to give up some stuff. I had to sacrifice some stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had some ups and downs, but at the end of the day, you know, they loaned me a shit ton of money to help build my band, yeah. you know, and, and that's what I wanted them to do. You know, anyway, because, they believed, because they believed in my band because they believed in the music and the, because they believed in me and, you know, and I'm still here for some crazy reason, you know, and we're still doing fucking amazing. And, you know, I, uh, I really, I really owe them a debt of gratitude, you mm-hmm. know, cause it was, they really invested, you know, just the touring alone. I don't even, I don't even think a band could get the tour support that we got back then, you know, <laughs> like hundreds of thousands of dollars in tour support to just keep us on the road and sell records and, you know, keep the ball moving and keep the band growing. And, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't even know if labels do that kind of stuff, stuff anymore, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have been part of that. And for all, I mean, all of the people that I was able to work with there, there was so many people, you know, there's people that I'm forgetting and, you know, so many unsung heroes there that like made things happen that, you know, you didn't even, you know, you don't, you didn't even know like people, you know, you know, Harlan was a big part of stuff back in the day. You know, probably Harlan. What's his surname? Sorry, Har- what's his last name? Fre- is it Frey? Yes, oh, Frey. right. Dude, got it. A lot. I mean, he fucking made a lot of shit happen. There was tons of people in the fucking, you know, in the chain, you know, wheels in the cog that made that Roadrunner machine fucking roll. And there's yeah. so many unsung heroes. You know, and it was it was it was awesome. It was a great experience, and uh, you know, I'm still here. I'm grateful to them for that. Thank you. I absolutely appreciate it. Thanks very much for your time. It, it was really, there's, there's all sorts in there that's giving me perspective, especially.